Warning, this podcast episode contains explicit content, including swearing, discussion of sexual violence and rape, and other adult content. Welcome to Crow Club, a shadow and bone and Grishaverse podcast. In this podcast, we'll be covering all of the Grishaverse, and it will be full of spoilers. No, really, we are going to have lots of spoilers. We're going to be talking about the original Shadow and Bone trilogy, the Six of Crows duology, the King of Scars duology, season one of the Shadow and Bone Netflix show, and even potentially Demon in the Woods, The Tailor, and The Language of Thorns. We'll be covering a character, topic, arc, or wild conspiracy theory in each show. So bust out your tinfoil hats and join us. We're a group of friends who've spent years reading all the books in the Grishaverse and discussing it together. We've had an active group chat going since Rule of Wolves, the latest book in the last duology came out. And basically pings for this group chat go off every five seconds on my phone. (laughs) And so we thought it was time to bring other people along for the ride. My name is Anjali. I'm Kat. And I'm JJ. And today's topic, we're actually discussing the protagonist of the Shadow and Bone trilogy, Alina Starkov. So we'll begin with a quote where I think really Alina describes herself best. And this is from Shadow and Bone, the first book in the trilogy, where the Darkling asks her, what are you laughing at? She says, myself. He asks, are you that funny? And she says, I'm hilarious. (laughs) Such a good line. So there's two different Alinas that we experience. There's book Alina and then their show Alina and they are actually pretty different. The books are written from her perspective. You get to hear what she's thinking and feeling at any time. I think in comparison to the show she comes off a little more complex. She's funny. She's like really funny in a way that I think didn't totally translate in the show. There are moments that kind of make me laugh out loud in her narration. She's a little bit wry. She's cynical. One of the major differences you see at the beginning is that because Alina is repressing her power, it has a real physical toll on her. And she's sickly and feels very unattractive. And then as she starts using her power, she transforms both physically and actually I think socially, where she finally gets a lot more friends and comes out of her shell. In the beginning, she basically only had Mal as her friend. She is, in the book, generic Ravkin, which we can sort of see as white, probably Russian, crypto-Russian, however you want to see it. Whereas in the the show, she's half-shoe, which kind of adds a whole other dimension to her character. And show Alina, like Anjali mentioned, is actually half-shoe. So this is a big deal, and we can talk a little bit about it more but the other thing that really struck me about Shoalina was just how social and outgoing she is. She's not isolated. She's friends with the other cartographers. She gets along with Mal's friends. She's just really a much more friendly and outgoing person, to, even to start off with. She's also a way more active participant from the beginning in the show. She's making her own choices. She burns the maps so that she can go into the fold. She makes a lot of other decisions throughout the show where she's clearly kind of acting as the instigator. She has a relationship, especially with Inej, which was really interesting to see. And then I think another major thing about Shoalina to call out is that the ending of season one is very different from the ending of the first book, where she and Mal escape without her using the cut and without killing anyone, versus presumably in the books, she actually uses the cut to destroy the skiff to get rid of the Darkling, but also all of the delegates that were on board at the same time. Fun fact time. According to thebump.com, Elena means light. And that same website describes someone with that name as having, quote, lots of positive energy and a bright future. <laughs> Very on the nose. Yeah. Other fun facts, especially for you show viewers, you might be wondering where did Elena come from? Who are her parents? We don't know. Even reading the entire Grishaverse set of books, there's actually no real clues or hints as to who her parents are and if any of them were Grisha themselves or if they had messed with Mirzaist. Nothing. We don't really know anything about her background. Yeah, and this is interesting because it leaves it open to a lot of speculation. In the books, we don't get the retconning that we did in, for instance, Star Wars, where Mm Rey is no one and then all of a sudden she's, what was it? (laughs) 
I'm I'm not like that into Star Wars. Palpatine's granddaughter. Palpatine's granddaughter. And so obviously, of course, this whole thing makes sense. I would argue that the ending of the Shadow and Bone trilogy really drives home the point that Alina is no one special, that she has an ordinary life full of ordinary things if love can never be called that, or, you know, whatever kind of that ending is. Yeah, I think there's a lot of interesting theories that can come out of this. I do think, though, that we'll probably cover those in future episodes. So come back to see kind of what we're thinking in terms of how Alina got her powers and where she came from. Yeah, come back and definitely bring your tinfoil hats for that one. (laughs) Yes. I think there are a lot of things that we just talked about that are kind of fun to unpack. One major one that I'd love to cover more extensively in a future episode, but we can just touch on a little bit here, is Alina's heritage. We know that her mom was Shu, her dad was Ravkin. They're killed by the fold somehow, but she doesn't know any more about her parents than that. But she ends up in an orphanage. It makes her half shoe and it makes her an outsider. It's a very deliberate way of kind of othering her in the show. Whereas in the books, like maybe she was mocked for being a peasant by some of the Grisha, specifically Zoya. But here it's Alina is an outsider and attacked by like everyone. There's this really interesting scene at the beginning of the show when you see these giant anti-shoe propaganda posters like hung on the wall and you see the shot of like Alina looking at this poster that has like a huge caricature of a shoe man and she looks extremely uncomfortable but it's just like this flash in her eyes and then she kind of looks down and it's like it just says so much that she's been used to that her entire life. I mean as someone who I guess in the Grishaverse would also be half shoe as I'm half Chinese I thought it was a really interesting choice and part of me is cynical and is like oh they just wanted to expand the audience and also make the main cast less just like white which it kind of is in the books all the main characters are at least white presenting. I also was thinking that it might be a more obvious thing from a modern audience to relate to in terms of being othered for how you look rather than as a peasant, since I think that's like a less relatable thing for at least a lot of maybe American audiences. Yeah. The other really obvious scene is when Jenny is tailoring her. She's about to be presented to the king and the servants are kind of really snooty and they are like, oh, you should change her eyes. And Alina is very upset, very understandably, and and begs Jenny to leave her eyes alone. I think having something about her that is visible that other characters in the universe are reacting to is potentially much easier for the audience watching when we are not inside Alina's head to understand this kind of alienation Mm -hmm. and disconnection. So I was also curious, one of the things you mentioned, Anjali, in the book summary is how funny Alina is and how you didn't feel like that translated to the show. Yeah. So book Alina has this very wry sense of humor and Behind Nikolai, I actually think she's like the funniest character. One of my favorite lines in the entire book is from Siege and Storm, where she just feels like really sheepish. And so she writes this imaginary letter to Nikolai's parents and she signs it, Alina Starkov, idiot. And I just, I like actually, I've read this this book like four times. Even this last time I started cracking up. Like it's just, she's very, you know, self-deprecating. I don't know. In the show, she's not devoid of a sense of humor. And I think she has really good chemistry with Mal where, you know, their banter together is really engaging and she's funny in that way. But I think the bigger jokes that the writers set up for her just didn't land. Right. I think my impression of Alina, especially in the first half of book one is that she's pretty sullen. She's kind of grumpy through a lot of it. She doesn't like people. As you know, the books are written from her perspective. It's her first person narrative. So we kind of get the humor in her own voice. And I think it's much harder when you're the actress, like Jessie May Lee, kind of acting in this more social, more friendly, more like an ingenue to have that same ability to pull off these sort of wry lines because she's just so much more earnest it feels like in the show yes she's very earnest in the show and I, I think you're completely right I think that sort of undercuts some of the humor of her lines yeah she's like Jessie Maylee don't get me wrong very endearing I thought she was great but I just think it is much harder to pull off some of these lines that work better when your character is very sullen throughout the series than it is when you're kind of this wide-eyed earnest innocent girl yeah one of the things I always think about for Alina is I think it's Siege and Storm, whatever they're, you know, they're on a boat and she's next to the Darkling and she considers pushing him off and, you know, maybe yeah. he'll drown. Like 
sure, he's hundreds of years old, but can he swim? <laughs> and, you know, that's very much her own internal monologue that we don't get in the show. She would have to be set up as a different character to say that to someone else and have it land the same mm-hmm. way. Totally. All this, again, to plug, if you haven't read the books already, you should read them. It's funny. Lee Bardugo has some hilarious lines. Yeah, I do think in in the show, my favorite sort of funny Elena line, and it's a very different sort of funny than in the book, is when she, you know, wants to go out into the crowd before the event. And she is convincing Jenya. She's like, I'll wear a hat or two hats. (laughs) <laughs> and, and you know, her delivery of the or two hats, I thought was great. And it's also a very different sort of funny than mm-hmm. book Elena. It's like a little bit silly mm-hmm. and less sort of dry, witty. Yes. So let's actually talk more about that because that's a scene, one of the few scenes it felt like to me in the show where you see how close that she and Jenya are getting versus in the books you i mean books just have way more time in general to develop things so we get more of an understanding of why they trust each other why they become friends when i watched the shadow and bone netflix show i had not read the book in a few years probably and i was really surprised at how cold ish i think cold may be the wrong word to describe how jenya seemed in their first interaction but you know, Jenya is sitting in the chair, Alina is in the tub, you know, getting scrubbed at and insulted in old Ravkin, which we will talk about later. And Jenya said something like, you're to be presented to the king in an hour. And Alina goes, oh, and Jenya goes, yes, oh. And in the show, I was like, wow, that that felt cold. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, you know, it was pretty harsh. It's a little um, condescending, I think. Condescending is a great description for it. And then I reread the book and I was like, oh, that dialogue is exactly in the book. Yeah, when you watch their first meeting in the show, it's hard to imagine they're going to become such good friends, isn't it? You're like, oh my god, it's another Zoya situation, you know, already. In the book, we see a lot of mentions of Elena eating some of her meals with Jenya, Jenya sharing some of the meals that she gets mm-hmm. with Elena. And along the same lines in the book, Alina has an instinct to cling to Jenya. For some Mm. reason, she kind of sees her as this like safe person. So she very clearly gravitates to her for whatever reason. That's a great point. I think that's the exact word to describe how it felt in the books to me that she latched on to Jenya and like clung to her. In the TV show, she seems to get along fine with Marie and Nadia. We don't have her inner monologue, of course. We don't know if she actually thinks they're silly or dislikes them. But again, I think because show Alina is so much more outgoing and confident, in a sense, there's less of that need to cling to this kind of familiar, safe feeling figure. Yeah. And I would add to the clinging to Jenya is that when she clings to Jenya, it is in private. They're eating in her rooms or they're meeting somewhere where it is not in public because Jenya knows that she cannot be around these other Grisha. And it's not something that Elena prioritizes changing. She she almost uses Jenya as an excuse to not spend as much time around some of the other Grisha. It sounds yeah. like some of this potentially in the book was even because she cannot summon on demand and keeps that a secret from the other Etheralki who go around and use their powers. And every time they invite her, she needs an excuse to not go. I think one aspect of Alina that's really interesting that, you know, I don't know if we've thought of talking about it because I think our discussions tend to focus on like book one Alina because the show is in season one too and there's so much meat there to dig about. But um, just talking about her and Jenya makes me think about Alina's a leader. And I think it's really interesting how her and Jenya's friendship evolved. And Alina not only forgave Jenya for the betrayal, essentially, where she betrayed her to the Darkling, but really saw potential in her. And at the end of the book, she picks her to be one of the the leaders or represent the Grisha. And I think Jenya is so touched, but Alina makes a lot of decisions as a leader that are actually very insightful and strong. She changes a lot up when she becomes leader of the Second Army. And I think that's kind of an aspect of Alina that's not talked about as much, but I think it's a really integral part of her. Related to that, on my reread of the short story, The Tailor, which is set primarily 
in the first book, Shadow and Bone, mm-hmm. and is from Jenya's perspective. Jenya is having a conversation with the Darkling, and she asks something around, once this is all over, what's going to happen? And the Darkling says, are you wondering whether she'll forgive you? She won't. Mm-hmm. And we see in that, which was not in the original trilogy, but I thought it was such an interesting glimpse into Jenya. She says later in the series, she loves being Alina's friend. The friendship is not, from her perspective, pretend at all, but also she is working for the Darkling and that is her number one priority right up until kind of it isn't. And I I think we see at that point where there is development in Elena that I think allows Jenya to see that this different type of leadership is possible. This type of leadership where forgiveness may be possible, right? Where mercy, which is something we know, you know, the darkling. uh, It's Elena's specialty. It's Elena's specialty. Mercy is not the darkling specialty. What does he say? What is it? I, I hope you didn't come to me expecting fairness. It's not mm-hmm. one of my specialties. You know, all these things that he's over time chipped away from himself and views as weakness, Alina starts to use those as a strength throughout the trilogy to kind of bring a lot of these Grisha over to her side as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's always hard to tell the Darkling if he's just lying. I actually was thinking that he was probably just saying what he would do if he were Alina. And Jenya had betrayed him because that's what happens later. He doesn't forgive her. He tortures her. He sets his shadow soldiers on her. I think maybe he was just thinking, okay, this is like, of course, she won't forgive you. So don't expect it. The other thing I was going to say about Jenya and Alina's relationship specifically is that related to what Anjali was saying around how in the books, their friendship is very private. I'm kind of surprised that it never seems like Jenya holds that against Alina or feels like a little bit resentful of that. I think most people would assume that if, you know, you have a friend, like your friends at home and then at school, they ignore you sort of vibes. And Jenya doesn't seem to ever hold that against her. Yeah, that kind of in conjunction with the tailor makes me wonder if Jenya was like, I'm also using this privacy as essentially a tool right now. So I'd also love to talk a bit about Alina and her amplifiers, specifically the Mordsova amplifier, starting with the stag. I think one key thing that we saw in the show is that there were some implications that Alina had been dreaming about it before. She writes in a letter, I'm dreaming about that stag again, which kind of suggests that it was actually meant for her. In the books, she doesn't dream of the stag. She's never, like, I think she's heard of the stag in childhood stories, if I remember correctly. It's like a familiar Robkin fairy tale. But it wasn't necessarily known to be actually intended for her. The only one who keeps saying that is the Darkling. Again, not our most reliable source (laughs) of information. Yeah, I mean, I think they are really setting it up in the show. We have the implication that the stag is something that has been on her mind and her dreams for a long time. Mm -hmm. And then when the Darkling kills the stag and they both have those horrific things implanted into their bodies for whatever reason. Oh my goodness, that was disgusting. But in the books, the way she reclaims the power of the amplifier is I guess a little bit related to what we were just talking about and maybe a really good like foreshadowing of her character is mercy, right? She's Mm -hmm. shown the stag mercy. And so that allows her to claim its power. And in the show, it's that the stag chose her. Mm-hmm. The Darkling may have killed it, but the stag chose her. And it is really set up as there is some additional special connection that we don't understand yet. And additionally, when Mal is tracking the stag, he says in one of the letters that he writes Alina that she never receives, he says that Sometimes when he and Alina used to hold hands when they were little, he would hear like a high tone, I think is what he calls it. There's some sort of high tone. And he heard it when he saw the stag. Mm. And so it is set up that there is some sort of existing connection, at least for Mal, between Alina and this stag. Yeah, and I think the reason that we're even asking these questions, right, is because Morozova's amplifiers are so interesting and they're so powerful. And by the end of the trilogy, you kind of see it seems like they're created for 
very specific purpose. <laughs> but on the other hand, they've been around for hundreds and hundreds of years. So it's just kind of left for the reader or the audience to theorize, okay, how is Morozova sort of envisioning that these amplifiers do what he's sort of planning for them to do, which is very different than anyone thinks? And how come nobody else managed to find them? Was it that you needed one of, you know, a tracker who is Morozova's descendant? Is it that only someone who was a sun summoner or who, you know, would be able to to find them and and wear them. I think we also talked about in our last episode like are these special amplifiers that stack? Could any other amplifier stack or is it only these ones? And I think all of these questions sort of are one of the questions at the heart of them or was Alina fated to have them? And I mean, I think the other big question as readers of the books that we'll have is she going to what's going to happen with the second amplifier with the sea whip is she also going to start dreaming about it has she been dreaming about it and sketching it before and we just didn't hear that in season one and then bigger question what's going to happen with the firebird and mal most of book three and i think the second half of book two she's convinced the firebird is the third amplifier which would suggest if the tv show continues this whole kind of dreaming and faded for her thing that she would have dreamed of the firebird and not of mal Spoiler, a little late. Mal's the third amplifier if you didn't hear our first episode. I think it would be sort of fun knowing that Mal is the third amplifier watching in season three as she just keeps dreaming about him and tries to just like rationalize it as like she needs to get his mind off him. She needs to like do whatever. Maybe this is what throws her into the arms of the Darkling. Mm. Maybe this is why when the Darkling shows up in her bed wearing Mal's face, maybe this Mm. is she's imposing it. Uh, on him that way. But I think there are a lot of opportunities for humor on rewatch, I think, as (laughs) if she keeps dreaming about Mal and trying to explain it to herself in ways where Mal is not the third amplifier. Yeah, it's just romance, JJ. You wouldn't get it since you're a dark Lena fan. (laughs) It's just true love. Yeah. Full of ordinary things. Yeah. The other thing I was going to say about the amplifier, especially in the show, is that scene where the Darkling first draws on her power after she's wearing the collar slash has the color inserted into her skin, under her skin in the show. Both JJ and Kat are making horrified faces, by the way, because the scene is super gross. I mean, that scene specifically was very uncomfortable and violating for me. It felt like a rape scene, actually, and I don't know how intentional that was or if it was mostly for like the shock value, but it really hit me in a different way than it did reading it in the books. Yeah, I've got to imagine that's not unintentional. And then I also have to ask one more question about the stag and amplifier. Is there any way we can justify the whole stag mercy plot device that happened? Especially in the books, I think the show was actually a little bit more ambiguous. Like Anjali was saying, maybe the stag chose her and it was kind of a different way of explaining why she was able to overcome the Darkling's hold on her power. Please explain slash justify to me. So the only justification (laughs) I could come up with, which I feel a little strange doing because I think in our group chat, I've been making fun of this for any time it comes up by just going mercy. But, But I do think that it is a like a reflection of how mercy to the darkling is something that makes no sense at all. You know, Maybe it did a hundred lifetimes ago or what, you know, a feeling he used to know a hundred lifetimes ago. But now this is something that we see when he has Sergei in book three. He's just kind of like, nah, he betrayed me. That's it. And I think that like this idea that it is something that Alina has that the Darkling does not can be, I think you have to read like several levels into it to see that kind of when the stag has a choice it chooses it chooses the person who is a better fit and it is the fact that she can be merciful there is not a clear connection for me other than that mercy comes up several times throughout the books as you explain that it it really reminds me of harry potter and the whole like voldemort not understanding why 
Lily Potter's love for her son shielded him because he doesn't get love. And so I'm like, okay, I guess it could be kind of one of those again. I will just say I never had a huge problem with (laughs) this whole plot point. Maybe I'm just, you know, simple. But, you know, I saw the the sort of intention that like she has a choice whether to kill it or not and that choice whether she takes its life or not like still gives her ownership and connection to it and I think you could possibly read into some of the explanation in King of Scars where the saints are sort of talking about I guess maybe specifically Juris is talking about how amplifiers were originally and how they're supposed to be used and it's not just a human taking an animal's life it's a two-way relationship where the human gives and you know gives up some of themselves as well i guess to be clear the thing the part that i had a problem with wasn't exactly the whole mercy aspect it was more that she didn't realize it until the villagers had been killed and suddenly mal was in danger in the books Like that part just felt weird to me that it took her so long to suddenly get it. Yes, I think that's a huge plot point. That has always been an issue with me is the timing. If she really was chosen by the stack, if she really, you know, was the one that, you know, had ownership over its life, whether she chose to kill it or not. It seems to me like the Darkling would have never had that power to be able to control the amplifier. But I mean, I guess the way you kind of explain it, I don't know if this is I buy it or not, is that she never tried to take the power. So it was open for the Darkling to take until she grabbed it. I think that makes sense. I think there are a number of things, I guess, since we're on the Elena episode, maybe this is appropriate. But in the reread, I never saw at any point. So with two amplifiers, she can cut the top off a mountain that's what, like six miles away or something. Mm -hmm. At no point does she go try to destroy any part of the fold. Like, she never tries with two amplifiers. I mean, with one, she kind of lights their way out, and I guess I could see, like, you know, whatever. But with two, she has more experience, more training with Bagra. And that's just, like, not even something that I, like, I don't even remember that being, like, discussed. Crossing her mind? Yeah. So I guess the one thing I would say in Alina's favor is in the books, even after she's put on the sea whip scales around her wrist, the fetters, they go into the fold and she gets completely freaked out because that's the first time I think the Darkling visits her through the tether and her light goes out. But my impression was that she, with the second amplifier, still felt incredibly intimidated and not like she was able to access maybe her full powers in the fold, especially because of what had happened when they when Nikolai took her there to kill a bunch of baby Fulcra. Yeah, I, that that's a good point. She does like she um, went back right with the second with the sea whip and yeah. then has that freak out moment. And I think she also recognizes the fold she kind of goes onto the fold and it feels familiar to her Mm. in a way that i don't remember if it's kind of explicitly written or if i just like took that as her realizing that like this is essentially part of the darkling i think what is also interesting is how we see alina develop over the series where she won't kill the stag she actually says you know i can't and then when we see the sea whip and it's been caught she's like okay just put the sea whip out of its misery. Like she's no longer trying to save it. I think she kind of knows it's a goner at that point. But then when it comes to the firebird, she's actively hunting it down. And she actually thinks to herself ruefully at one point, like I remember that girl, her younger self, who wasn't okay with killing and who was going to show the stag mercy. And now she has zero problem hunting down Ravka's most important, most like in a way sacred animal and killing it for her own purposes. So it feels like she's, in a way, maybe becoming more and more like the Dark Lane. Like, she's becoming merciless when it comes to fulfilling what she thinks needs to be done. And then when we see her be truly merciless until Mal, we learn that turning into the Darkling is what results in everything being taken away from you. Yep. So what we are not going to do in this episode is really touch very much on Alina's romantic relationships. We touched a lot on her relationship (laughs) with Mal in the Mal episode. And when we talk about her other potential romantic interests, we will also discuss their relationship with her since that's a large part of each of their characters as well. Yeah, I think what JJ is saying is we're not going to get into her romantic feelings and romances in this episode because... (laughs) Because. (laughs) 
Yeah. But what is fair game for this episode? Her relationship with her power. Her powers. Okay. (laughs) Okay. I have to say that the first Shadow and Bone trailer that I saw, when I saw a little bit of Elena's power, like in her hands, that was the first time in after years of this where I was like, oh, her power is sun. Like she is a sun summoner and not a light summoner. And I struggled with this a lot in the books. Her powers are described very much as they're being light. She's glowing. Mm -hmm. It's not kind Mm -hmm. of this like, what is this on like nuclear, like fission, fusion? That's really not how her power is described in the books. And it makes it a little unintuitive sometimes around what she can and can't use. So like, why can she use sunlight but not light from a fire which plays a huge role in book three when she can't use her powers underground so we've come up with some theories around that but i will say that i was so excited to see in the show that she really is a sun summoner and it just like the visuals there were absolutely stunning Right. I think they make it very clear what the difference between a sun summoner and an inferni is, to your point, that fire is not the same as summoning sunlight or like power of the sun. And so then, to some extent, I guess maybe we're getting a little bit into the weeds here, but like, it's called the small science. And so Mm -hmm. on a scientific level, what is she summoning? Like, what is going on in sunlight that she is able to summon and control that light coming from an artificial light source or from a fire does not maybe we'll need to do some fact checking here but you know when i think about stuff coming from the sun that does not come from like a light bulb i'm thinking right like uv rays right they always Mm -hmm. talk about uv Mm -hmm. rays coming from the sun but those are not like directly visible in the same way that photons are, you know, in the book, there's really a lot of light. We also see the first time she kind of lights up on the fold in the show. She's really, there's light shooting out of her ears. (laughs) Um, You know, I think they do a good job of showing kind of the difference between what a sun summoner and a light summoner might be in, in the show, but it's still not clear to me exactly what's going on. On. Yeah, 100% agree. I wish I had an explanation. I, I would love an actual physicist because I don't remember a lot of my light wave particle physics uh, enough to give a, you know, even a good guess about what's going on. But I think it would be interesting to dig into. And I wonder if how much Lee thought about that specific aspect. I'm pulling a David to add in. <laughs> yes, <and> JJ. <laughs> One of the other things, though, is that in Ruin and Rising, she specifically manipulates light. She makes things invisible, and it's using these same principles that it's implied, I guess, that the Darkling was kind of using in the first book to, to make them invisible by kind of moving the light. And so I thought that was, I mean, it it's... I think a great like bit in the book. I think it's really like neat to kind of see her discover more of the nuances of the power. I think it additionally complicates what we're supposed to believe or understand her powers actually are because Mm -hmm. that's so light specific. In the acknowledgments to Ruin and Rising, she talks about Alina's ability to make things invisible and how it sounds like the most like kind of fantastical part of the book, but how it's actually rooted in science. And she thanks the scientists that she worked with that kind of helped her work through that. And that kind of makes me believe that maybe she really did think through the science aspect of Alina's power and like think about, you know, what might be different between sunlight and light and how that's in a way that's rooted in science. But you know, if there's something in sunlight that is unique, and that just happens to come along with when she pulls it that it brings all of the rest of it with it. And so this maybe could explain part of what is going on in the fold, because the whole bit about the fold and in the books, it's really explicit that the fold is just like complete blackness. There's no light in the fold. You can't even see your hand in front of your face. Obviously, that doesn't work very well in a show, but she is able to summon in the absence of light in a way Mm -hmm. that she's not when she's underground. And so that makes me wonder if there are potentially parts of sunlight, right? These invisible parts of sunlight 
that are able to kind of permeate the fold and that when she calls on them, her power calls enough of them that it's like pulling from outside the fold and kind of bringing the rest of this light with them. Somehow. Yeah, I think it's it's possible, especially because in the show or from the show afterwards, we kind of learned that the fold is a, a never-ending storm. And that wasn't clearer to me in the books. But if you think about the difference between a never-ending storm above ground versus when she's, you know, multiple layers deep underground, what is able to be pulled versus what's not, I think there's something kind of maybe to that theory. Yeah, I think it's, yeah, I think this is maybe the, the tinfoil hat part. I don't think <laughs> it is a storm in the books because it is also described as just like so quiet in mm-hmm. a way that like we actually like see and kind of hear the lightning and thunder, which is visually stunning in the show. Mm-hmm. And there is just no kind of the description of it is so different in the books. I think one other interesting aspect of her power is her affinity for the power and like how fast she takes to being a Grisha. She comes to the little palace like quite late for a Grisha. Most um, of the other Grisha are, are trained as young children. And though she's extremely slow in the beginning because she has this massive power block from repressing her power, she becomes quite powerful quite quickly. And that's without having someone that's actually had her specific power as an example. It also with, you know, teachers that arguably aren't the greatest teachers <laughs> maybe teaching through fear and mostly gets results through uh, I would say uh, sticks rather than carrots and one thing that's really kind of amazing about Alina and we see this more in, in the book than the the season one of the show is that she also is able to use the cut which we don't see any other Grisha besides the Darkling and Bagra being able to do. Bagra tells people that she has done it. Well, I think she tells the Darkling, teaches the Darkling how to do it in Demon in the Woods, or am I wrong? Yes. She doesn't teach him how to do it. And actually, the, the thing that you know I was going to bring up is that Demon in the Woods is written from the Darkling's point of view, and you sort of hear him berate himself about how Bagra was able to do the cut at my age, but like he still can. And so Bagra was able to do it at half his age. Oh, sorry. She was able to do it at half his age, and he still can't. And Olina, with basically no focused instruction, is able to do the cut at will. And that's kind of fascinating to me. And it made me wonder if those other Grisha can, like normal Grisha, or if Alina is somehow special in and of herself. Yeah, I actually went through and looked to see if there's any other mentions of other Grisha ever using the cut. The closest I could find is in the King of Scars duology. In one of Zoya's chapters, she mentions that she used to worship at the Altar of Power, specifically mentioning things like the cut. And we never actually see Zoya use it, even though by the end of Rule of Wolves, she's like the second most powerful Grisha in the world, assuming we count the Darkling as Grisha still. I think what was impressive to me about Alina is how fast of a learner she is. It's almost like she's like reflecting knowledge that she sees in the darkling back at him like many of the things she picks up like the cut learning how to bend light to make people and things invisible figuring out how to use the tether connection to the darkling even starting to use her connection to him to draw from him merzost were all things she saw him do and we're not going to get into it this episode but it is maybe i think part of the reason why the darkling may or may not be interested in like intrigued by her as a person yeah and that's a good point that she really doesn't pick up any of the more interesting things that she could do with her power until that connection between them is opened by him having killed the stag that was a major turning point for her i think it really lit the fire under her and i remember that before, and they did this both in the book and in the shows, her talking about how, like, can't you just take this power and give it to someone else if you've been waiting for a sun summoner so long? And by the end, the Darkling's kind of, you know, almost like making fun of her, being like, remember, you said you didn't want it? Well, now it's not yours to control. And that's it for her. From that point on, her power is the most important thing to her. Yeah. Also, man, that was one of the places in the show where we really just see the Darkling's manipulation come out to play. Totally. It's like, well, you said you didn't want it. 
And then I think the other kind of aspect of Alina's power is her sort of craving for it. She becomes much more obsessed with her power as the books go on. She just starts like obsessing over the amplifiers. And it's even when she gets the the sea whip, all she can think about is like, well, my other wrist is empty and I want the third one. But she she starts becoming really ambitious and in a way mirroring the Darkling's ambition. Yeah. It's actually pretty hard for me to imagine how they're going to get the show Alina with Jesse May Lee to the same place that book Alina gets to in terms of being ambitious and almost like ruthless in her desire to become more powerful. Yeah, the book sort of, I think, sets it up as a way of kind of showing what power can do to people. Like, this is what it has done to the Darkling. And then as Alina gets more and more, all she wants is more and more. I think I read it initially very much as it was what these specific amplifiers did. Like, they Mm. were meant to be used as a set. So, of course, they're, like, pulling her to complete the set. And it makes a lot of that arc very different. Like, it's less blamey or, you know, you're getting maybe what you deserve, which is power taken away from you. And it just kind of makes it a little bit more like she's still being pulled along by the whim of Morozovar, one of his descendants, mm-hmm. you know, in, in a lot of this. Should we move to Bagra? So Alina, in the books, she like has this makeout scene after the winter fet with the Darkling. And he says, can I come mm-hmm. to you tonight? She doesn't answer. And then in the show... She and the Darkling are really going at it, and he gets called away. And in both of these, then Bagra comes in and is like, whoa, you need to leave right now. And so it is sort of surprising in both of these scenarios that Elena goes from being ready to like realistically bang the Darkling. Pretty clear in the show, that's where this is going. In the book, it is markedly less clear that's where it's going, but it's certainly... (laughs) on the table. Wow, were you waiting to do that? <laughs> I wasn't. It just <laughs> fell into my lap. But yeah, in the book, she's like, Bagra, you're unwell. Let me send for a healer. And then Bagra summons darkness. And she's like, oh my god, you're his mother. Everything you're saying is completely true. And I need to get out of here. And in the show, she sees a portrait. She sees the portrait. And we actually see Bagra use her shadow summoning. In both the show and the book, we see Bagra use her power to convince Elena that she is related to the Darkling. And then Elena is like, oh, dang, he's bad. In the book, she escapes following Bagra's plan. In the show, she doesn't trust Bagra, which seems like mm-hmm. a great idea. <laughs> Not trusting Bagra seems like absolutely the right call. Bagra says, you know, go left. And she goes right. And yep. she kidnaps herself straight into the trunk of the crows. What do we think about Bagra in in these scenes and Elena's reaction to her? I find Elena's reaction in both the show and the books, maybe even more so in the show, to be quite surprising. Like, she really almost immediately believes Bagra, I guess primarily because she sees that Bagra is also of the Darklings line, and then I guess assumes, why would she lie to me about this? But she was just making out with him, and the book's about to take him back to her room for the night. It felt really fast to me, and I know I'm a Darklingist, Dan, but it also made sense to me more, like, why the Darkling kind of felt so betrayed and questions her both in the show and in the books like why she left him so quickly why she believed Bagra so fast and in his eyes betrayed him in doing so in the books at least it kind of seemed to me that it, it might have been like a, a pride issue to some extent where she realized she was being fooled and she felt really stupid and so part of it was like kind of immediately reacting to that and she knows that he was lying to her to some extent so she just does kind of very quickly believe that he's lying to her about everything. To me, the, the, I would assume the truth is maybe somewhere in between. But I mean, Bagra does tell her that her, her life is in danger, that she's about to be a slave. And mm-hmm. I understand that kind of fear makes her be like, well, I gotta run. But yeah, I, I agree. It's surprising. I especially think that taking into account her relationship with Bagra up until this point, <laughs> right? I, there's really kind of a leap from, you know, she hates working with Bagra so much Mm -hmm. and everyone's like, ugh, she's the worst. And even the Darkling's like, yeah, she's the worst. And then, 
you know, this woman who's like sometimes hitting her, never satisfied, shows up and is like, okay, well, you've got to like run away now. I think we either maybe don't see the sort of like respect and trust that has been built up between the two of them, which I think is more surprising to not see in the book since it's from Elena's perspective. And we could easily have seen that even though she doesn't like Bagra's method, she like realizes how much she knows and like comes to respect her for it. And she does have to make a decision. And I guess, especially, you know, in the show, we see her being impulsive and like burning all the maps. And so this impulsivity is at least established. That's fair. Talking about map burning, I thought it'd be interesting to talk a little about Alina and some of her morally gray decisions. One of the huge differences between the book and the show is that she doesn't have this ethical crisis in the show. In in the book, Kat mentioned before, she essentially, to save Mal on the skiff in the fold, she consigns everyone else on the skiff to death. In the show, they absolve her of that decision or kind of save her from having to make it by setting it up so the Darkling kills everyone <laughs> on the skiff beforehand, which, I mean, I'll be honest, that didn't really make sense to me why he would do nope. that. But she essentially doesn't have that weighing on her conscience. And she doesn't have a lot of the same kind of death. She doesn't have to make the same hard decisions. But one of the things I did think was interesting that in the show that she does not do in the books is at the very beginning, and she goes and burns all the maps so that she can go into the fold with Mal. And I mean, I thought that was kind of crazy and not a great decision on her part. She's consigning her entire unit to go into the fold with her and presumably also probably die. And she never thinks about the fact that people die because of her decision and her rashness. And I just thought that was maybe a little bit of a missed opportunity where she could have some sort of guilt or, you know, I don't know, some sort of moral dilemma. But they really skip over that with show Alina. Yeah. At the end of the book Shadow and Bone, when Alina and Mal are escaping on the fold, the Darkling starts like yelling after her. Is this your idea of mercy? And you start seeing that real, the the dynamic between them is a little bit different, right? And she thinks in response to that, yes, the mercy you taught me. So kind of in, in response to the mercy that she showed to the stag, this is like the Darkling's mercy reflected back at him. And it's really something that she, that kind of illustrates the characters and I think the Alina-Darkling dynamic dichotomy. We don't see that at all in the show. And what did you think of her ending in the overall trilogy by the end of Rune and Rising? I like I was bummed by the ending. I, I really liked her development and then I didn't understand she had never like expressed a desire to run an orphanage or be like super ordinary. And so that felt really surprising to me. I think in the show she has expressed much more of a desire to be ordinary than she ever did in the books. My hope is that they're setting it up for an ending that like feels like it has been something that she's wanted this whole time. I'll be honest, I, JJ and I have so many differences in opinion on this book. I didn't mind the ending. I kind of saw her as sometimes um, being torn between the onus of responsibility for saving the world and just wanting to retreat into an ordinary life and be at peace. And I I thought she deserved to be at peace at the end of the book. And I I know that a lot of people aren't happy with it. And I think a lot of people that maybe aren't necessarily Mal and Alina fans, I can see why they may be super unhappy with it. (laughs) I want to add quickly to that, that we do learn in Rule of Wolves that she is happy. Happy, but she's still grieving the loss of her power. Yeah. Right? I mean... Which is fair. Like, all of us, you know, can be happy in our day-to-day and still grieve loved ones who passed, you know, let alone, I've never had my own power, so I can't really, you know, (laughs) relate on that level, but... I will say that, like, I very much am supportive of an ending where Elena has peace, and I am worried for the future of the Grishaverse after Rule of Wolves, because I really, I was, if she, like, if this is the piece she's chosen, like, I hope she gets it. 
and it looks like she's getting dragged back into things now. I'm not sure how I feel about that. It was nice getting to see them again, but also, you know, I feel like that ending was tied off so neatly. It was kind of unnecessary to bring back Alina and Mel. I think in Rule of Wolves, the sense I got is that Lee Bardugo was considering ending the Grishaverse kind of there, and she's alluded to that in some interviews that there aren't any future books so far forthcoming is that she wanted to bring back all of her favorite characters one more time, almost as like a fan service because, you know, Inej was there too randomly. A fan service in exchange for killing David. (laughs) I did want to talk a little bit about my feelings about the ending of the series before we get too far into another topic. I mean, I think, sure, would I have liked for her to keep her powers and continue to be this, you know, super strong, badass, like, magic girl? Yes. But overall, I actually felt like it was a pretty satisfying ending in the sense that it was more like she got what she needed, not what she wanted. What she needed was some calmness and stability in her life. All right, so for this episode's edition of Kiss, Mary, Kill, we have an exciting four-person version. So we have show Elena, book Elena, show Mal, and book Mal. And of course, there's overlap. There are similarities between these people. But from what we know about them. Oh my god, book Mal is definitely getting killed. Sorry, Anjali, I know how you feel about him. But I process of elimination, that's the easiest one. I think I might marry show Mal for all the reasons we discussed in the first episode. And then... I guess I will kiss slash hook up with both book and show Alina. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> I don't think I could marry book Alina because I think she's too dour and sullen in the beginning of the series for me. It would definitely wear on my nerves over time. Show Alina is just a little bit too earnest for me too. I need a little, I need a good mix of that dry humor, but some cheerfulness. For me, I would marry book Alina. You guys might know my partner is a mixture of grumpy and hilarious. And I, you know, I feel it's pretty compatible with me. And then, oh, who would I kill? I guess I'd kill show Alina. I'm sorry. I really don't like her. I just think she's kind of flat and uninteresting. She's very beautiful. And I think that Jessie Mae is a great actress, but you know, she's just, she's a little flat. And then I'd kiss both book Mal and show Mal because they're both hot. <laughs> All right. I'm going to go the combo of you guys. Killing Book Mal, kissing Show Alina and Show Mal. And I'm marrying Book Alina because I know her best. I realized that, like, I really am, like, it's just not clear to me exactly what I'm getting with any of these other people. And she's kind of like the most known entity because I've read hundreds of pages of her perspective. And I'm like, okay, I think I can, like, work with that. And she makes you laugh. Yeah, and she makes me laugh. That's important. Well, thanks so much for joining us again. And if you like the show, please feel free to subscribe and like our podcast. See you next time. 